The Comedy Channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Welcome to the Constant Comedy Podcast. I'm Vinny Favalli. And I'm Art Bell. And we do this thing together every week. Art, do you believe we've made it to week number three? Amazing. I wasn't even sure we were going to get to week number one, but here we are at week number three. It's very exciting. And and in fact, week number three went in a direction that we didn't see. Well, maybe we had a rough idea. Uh, Week number three is going to end up being week number four as well, because our guest today, Mitch Semmel, who you'll hear more about shortly, has had an incredible career. Mitch and I and Art all met each other at Comedy Central, I guess in what, like 95? 91, 92. No, it it was earlier than that. Right, right. We left there. Right, right. He got, he came on and Mitch coming to the network with the background that he had that preceded him was a big get for us. And it yielded two uh, great things, which he'll talk about. He's also, I think, one of the most beloved network executives that ever lived. Well, that is quite, <laughs> quite a statement there, especially coming from one of the most beloved Network executives who ever lived, Vinny Favalli. Oh, so. go on. No, really. Continue. <laughs> go on. No, it, no it's true. Mitch, I, I, we, the reason I say that, because the job of a network current exec, and we talked about that with the Laurie Zacks interview and a bit with Scott Carter, the current executive is something that most people don't know. People just assume shows are developed, they magically go on the air and they run themselves. And and they don't. There is a development department that that is incredibly talented at every network and streamer that has to find find the next Stranger Things, you know, have to have to find Bob's Burger, develop it. But once that pilot is is produced and and it goes on the air and more episodes are done, those development executives move on to the next show. And guess what? Guys like Mitch Semmel and the current department have to maintain the quality and they have to give notes and sometimes they are the messenger of bad news from the network because they do represent the big bad network yeah they're the go-between right they're the the show and the network and they have to keep everybody happy but they're paid yeah they do And, and that was the role i had with letterman but at a time especially when mitch was was doing it now the networks own a lot of the shows, so it's one whole family, and uh, the head of the network could mediate a dispute between the show and the network and the studio. In Mitch's case, they were separate. They were different worlds, and he's going to get into that, which is really, really fascinating, uh, and it'll become clear when, when you hear his story why we love this guy. And, and, and just, to, just to be clear, when you're talking about the network, you're talking about CBS, well, in Mitch's case, it was he yeah. started out at NBC. So right. now, like like when Lori was the current executive on on some of the shows that she worked at CBS, CBS, the network, also owned the studio that produced the shows. When Mitch was the current executive on Golden Girls or Cheers, two of his shows, or Family Ties, they were being produced by a studio that had nothing to do with NBC. And if right. if a showrunner was not happy with the constant stream of network notes that were coming in, that could be an issue. There's no one to really mediate that. Mitch would have to navigate those waters, and he and he did it in an incredible way. And I learned a lot from him. 
uh, when he brought me over to CBS. Anyway, there's a lot to unpack here. So what do you say, Art? Why don't we let Mitch do all the heavy lifting? Yeah, that's great. Let's get to it. Our next guest has so many credits and accomplishments that to paraphrase Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. He's worked with TV legends and amongst us network executives, he's a true legend himself. He started his TV career working for Brandon Tardcroft during NBC's must-see TV era, overseeing classic sitcoms like Cheers, Golden Girls, and even Bob Hope specials. That Brooke Shields, isn't she something? And Real People, which was the birth of modern reality TV. So we have Mitch to blame for that one. Mitch switched sides from TV network to TV supplier as the head of Ubu Productions, where he oversaw their flagship show, Family Ties. And while there, he discovered or worked with newcomers Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Ellen DeGeneres on their first big sitcom debuts. He did a short stint at PBS where he tried to kill off a lovable purple dinosaur. We cannot wait to hear all about that. He made a huge impact on Comedy Central, which is where Art and I first met him with the launch of Politically Incorrect and the number one show on cable at the time, Absolutely Fabulous. He's worked with and produced some of TV's greatest talk show hosts including david letterman conan o'brien tom snyder and howard stern he's one of the first executives that leslie moonves hired when he brought bill cosby to cbs and was instrumental in the development and launch of that show he was general manager at the onion and invented tv shows from home long before zoom when he launched huff post live he's worked with some of the top tv newswomen including gail king and katie Couric. he now heads up several media consulting with a wide variety of entertainment companies and is not only a licensed pilot but a certified flight instructor seinfeld is often mistaken for mitch at corporate events the resemblance is uncanny although i think mitch is better looking please welcome mitch semmel to the constant comedy podcast boy i was gonna say Vin, i'm exhausted just hearing you read that can we all just take a break now mitch is the most mitch is the most Thank eligible. You. good to be here good to see you guys he's the most eligible married man in the country i think based on that introduction <laughs> and a LinkedIn, your linkedin inbox is going to explode mm -hmm. No doubt. No doubt. Unbelievable. Mitch, what a career, by the way, that you're still in the thick of. You're not retired. You're yeah, thank very, you. Thank you. You're, you're still very young. Did you work at TV coming right out of college? I had been, I got started in the radio business while in college and lucked into a couple of contacts there that, yes, led directly to TV. Uh, to name drop one even more than Brandon Tartikoff, um, though it was fantastic working for him and I learned so much. But actually, the contact that led me to NBC of all, t all people was his boss, Grant Tinker. Remember that name? Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. Yeah, um, legend in TV. I was lucky enough in my early radio days to interview him, stay in touch with him. Um, wonderful, lovely man. And he steered me to, when he went to NBC, uh, a then 40-year-old management training program that, believe it or not, he had been in in his early days when it was still RCA, I believe. And uh, I applied, didn't get it, applied again a couple of months later, got it, and suddenly found myself in TV. I already was, pro it was probably somewhat like your, wasn't yours at CBS? My, my yes. entry into the business? Yes. Yeah, yes. wasn't a Were you in a management, okay. I, I just walked in and I was in CBS television stations, which was a crazy right. place to be in those days because they were right. minting right. money. And, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you gotta Late, later, later to employ, yeah, later to employ Ben Zurier, CBS TV station, right, former Comedy uh, Channel and Central. So, so Mitch, you went to Northwestern. Is that where you went to school? I went to Princeton. Oh, you went to Princeton. Not, oh. not, not exactly known for radio or TV. <laughs> Until you, now it is. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, 
And just backtrack for a second. Did you like love comedy your entire life growing up? Was that like a big? I part? did. Yes. Yes. I was. I was. I mean, we had you know uh, two brothers, lovely, wonderful childhood, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. Lots of activities, lots of outside time, but the inside time was watching uh, TV reruns late in the afternoon before dinner. And for us, believe it or not, in Chicago, uh, one of the biggest shows, I think it was like five in the afternoon, was the Dick Van Dyke show. Still to this day, my favorite television show ever. That classic, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. That, and it's funny because you made your career, or you started your career as a current executive, and we'll get into that in a second. But could you imagine having been the executive on the Dick Van Dyke show, the fictitious one and the real one? <laughs> Exactly. No, I cannot. <laughs> How do you give notes? How do you give notes to Bill Persky and Carl Reiner? Exactly. Exactly. Well, the wildest part is you guys know if you read any of their books is uh, then it was still in the era where the ad agency was king. The network was not really the network as we know it. So in the in the first season, at least, I believe I'm forgetting who it was. They had a cigarette sponsor and that's who they got notes from. Right. And, they, and, and, and still still now, if you watch the first season, you'll see some of the characters smoking. I just I just want to throw in for you know for anybody out there listening who has not really kind of focused on the original Dick Van Dyke show that's like a lesson in how to do sitcoms it's a yeah. lesson in how to write them and perform them it was really uh it was really foundational and you're 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 so right Art in terms of story structure character development cast chemistry and also frankly <laughs> It was meta before anyone knew what meta was because it was based on Carl Reiner's own life and including the, the, the remarkable decision. Remember, he made the pilot as head of the family where he was Rob Petrie, and then he decided to uncast himself. Right. right. It's, it's actually a lesson right. in development when you think about yes, it. How exactly. Sheldon Leonard, exactly. Leonard said, because they, they did the pilot, which which right. is the whole, you know, the it hasn't changed mm -hmm. in the in, in the 50, 60 years of television. You test it right. out. Proof of concept. He started the pilot, as Mitch said, and then Sheldon said, love the show. Not you so much as. as exactly. And, and then if I remember right, they also had a lapse either after the pilot or the first couple of episodes where. It hadn't caught on or hadn't been bought, and they had to go around. I think it was Sheldon Leonard and Danny Thomas, the executive producers, who had to basically schlep the show and find sponsors. Because, again, in that era, the TV networks were really just distribution mechanisms. It was the ad agencies. You had to get them to buy in and bring sponsors, right? But, by the way, are also proving your point about the durability of the show. Do you guys remember, this probably goes back 15 years ago or so, and I'm forgetting the writer's name, but in the period when people still got TV uh comedy writing jobs off of spec scripts somebody i want to say around maybe around the year 2000 wrote a spec dick van dyke show is that right is yes. that around and got work off is, of it is, right? oh, no, and, and it wasn't fun. it was not an update it was as if it was still In 50s, 1965 yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the show's on yeah which yeah. i thought was a genius move right yeah. what what better i mean to show your chops by taking on the hardest challenge and show that your respect for comedy history right and now time, that person right? is selling insurance in des moines right? probably yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> someone did someone did a, a reverse of that or a variation where they imagined if twitter uh, on twitter if seinfeld was still on the air and they were yes, doing exactly they were tweeting plot episodes based yes. around current technology yes. now, yep, listen yep. you know fan fiction is a big deal you know people write fan fiction all the time and that's the absolute 
I didn't even know hey, that was our, going our, on. It, to seems, any great it seems to me now we live in a world where it's almost impossible to untangle the DNA of fan fiction and actual creator fiction. I mean, right. you know, last week the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League came out. A lot of that had to do with fan feedback, right? Or you get guys on their own who are recutting Star Wars and putting it on YouTube, right? <laughs> you know? Well, you know, copyright we, issue there, but. Uh, and uh, yeah. podcasts, what we're doing is lazy fan fiction, where we're too like, so, lazy yeah. to write about it, but yeah. we're more than happy to talk about sure. it. Sure, sure. Although, Art, you know, speaking of the copyright stuff, I don't know if this ever pops into your feeds, but on my YouTube feed, I got some Riff Tracks clips popping up. Oh, the right. Mystery Science now, Theater offshoot. Yeah, that's the MST guys, but somehow they figured out a way around the copyright stuff that we were bound by because I guess technically you're just buying the audio feed from them, but somehow it, it interlaces with the legit film. All right, that's a bigger discussion, and we'll have to get into that at some <laughs> point because I don't know what the heck's going on. But, you know, listen, yeah, yeah. when we were making hey, television Art, Art, in those you days. Do, when you do your parallel court TV podcast, <laughs> You'll have those guys on to talk about that. Hey, listen, when, when, when I was at comedy, we did. I had this idea: watch us watch the Oscars. Uh, we put Mario yeah. Cantone in a chair watching the Oscars during the Alan Havey show. We couldn't show the Oscars, but he was like, "Oh my God, what is she wearing?" Yeah. You know, he was yeah. commenting on it. I just want to point out that you're you're men I mentioned copyright. Copyright is almost gone at this point because yeah, of the internet, yeah. because everybody yeah. steals everything. And, mm -hmm. and Vinny and I were just mm -hmm. like such old timers. We're worried about it constantly. Oh my God, can we use that piece of that song? And it's like, right. Yeah. Who's going to find us? And if they find us, who's going to prosecute us? I mean, it really, comes you know, our, you're so right. And you probably know more with your business background, but whatever, whatever's kind of the modern era of copyright, I, we're probably kind of at the end of it. I, I, I agree with you. It's going to be harder and harder to maintain, you know, who has a claim on an original work when so much is riffing off those works? Yeah, it's, it's, it is crazy. But you know what? That's why it's open season on media right now. I mean, everybody right. can. Yeah. I said in 2005, you know, in the old days, you, had to, you need a lot of money to create a television network. Now, a kid could put a TV network out from his garage. And guess what? That's, right. what, that's exactly right. what happened. And but here's right. the thing. Right. The thing about comedy, you could stand behind parody in a lot of cases where you're making fun yes. of things and you can get away within limits. Uh, okay, so Mitch, this career of yours, which we've barely scratched the surface, because of your connection with Grant Tinker or you know mentoring, not even a connection, mm -hmm. because as you said, you right. didn't get picked the first time, you find yourself working for Grant Tinker. Did you move to California from Chicago at the time? Uh, I did. I did. I did. I uh, Yes. Yep. Uh, hung out in Chicago, for, I think, for one fall, made it out there right around Thanksgiving and it must have been in 81. Um, and I'm in this training program, which is fantastic. They shuttle us around among all the different departments. So we had and, and then uh, TV networks, there were only three of them. This was before Fox. Uh, the running joke that wasn't a joke was at NBC at the time, we were fourth in a three network race. <laughs> uh, but it turned out to be good for me because um so it was mostly comedy and drama divided within into current and development. And then there was this other catch-all department that had various names, but uh, at some point, the longest names on our business cards, because I finally got placed in that one. I think we were um, late night specials and alternative. Okay. And uh, Vinny, this was, I was the, the, the junior most person, but it was Peter Calabrese, Rick Ludwin, Nancy Geller, and me. Wow, Nancy Geller's right. going to be on an, on an upcoming show. <clears throat> Good. That's, that's I was going to say, got to get her. That is incredible. Yes. 
Yes. And, and why, why it was so oddly great from a business and learning standpoint was because, again, we were third and we had so many shows failing, Brandon would turn to Peter and Rick first when shows would fail and say, I just canceled this thing. I need you to plug the next three, you know, Wednesday nights at nine. What do you got? Right. And either we had something in the works or we had to make it up quickly. But it was a remarkable way to learn. And, and as is true today, no surprise, the fastest and cheapest stuff you got, could get on was not scripted. It was variety shows. It was, again, early versions of what we would now call reality. Um, and, that, and, that, was, and that's where you were working with Bob Hope, right? That would be the Bob right, Hope Right, right. Those, those had been ordered. But it would periodically be a question about, well, I know we're not supposed to tape for three weeks. Is there any chance you could tape tomorrow? Well, you know? later, later, Rick Ludwin. By, by the way, Rick, yeah. Okay. Famously Rick, took Rick, budgets Rick, from the Bob Hope show to, to fund the Seinfeld pilot. Exactly, exactly. This, this is a dated reference probably for a lot of your listeners, but Rick had the great line. He referred to our department as the Red Adair of television uh, development. Because <laughs> yeah. remember, Red Adair was the guy who would, he had his, his uh, oil well fire team. They would suit up in the silver suits and they would go in to put out oil right. well fires. Right, right. We, were, we were that of television. So, so you were in that area and then did you graduate or then get hired full-time into the current department working? I got, I got hired full-time into the variety department, which also included late night. So it was then, uh, Carson and Letterman and SNL. Um, and then let's see, got moved over a couple of years later to the TV, the comedy current department, which is great. I, I had the rare experience. Most people thought development was where it was at. But I actually liked Current because we would inherit the shows after the pilots had been made and the series were ordered. And as you guys know, despite all the hard work that goes into developing a new show, especially, especially for a pilot, you don't really figure out what most shows are until somewhere in the first season. You're lucky if by episode six, you know what the heck the show is. You know, Art, you've talked to Mike Whitehorn about like what it was like on Family Ties. Start with a show that's about the parents. And then the audience is telling you, no, we really, the parents are great, but we really like this kid, Alex, right? Right. And I'll just mention um, that Mike is a friend of mine. I went to college with him. He ended up early in his career, almost immediately, actually, writing for, for Family Ties. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then, and then uh, co-creating King of Queens, right? And then, Mike did, and then he did King yeah. of Queens, which was, of course. Yeah. So Mitch, you have to deal with the, also the sensitivity of the cast, because Meredith, uh, uh, Baxter Bernie was the star right. of that show. That was yes. her show on paper yeah. going in. And, and, and Michael Gross as well. And I'll tell you, I, I think an untold part of the success of the show is how remarkably gracious both Meredith and Michael were. Meredith in particular, because she was the big star going into the show. Right. And that's Bernie. rare. You, exactly. You guys know, uh, you know, there's so many stories where that happens and there's just a lot of, of problems uh, in terms of personal relationships and chemistry on screen, couldn't it, it couldn't be further, you know, with Meredith. She, she like everybody else, saw that what was good in that case for Michael was, was good for the show, but the, the unbelievable success of the show would not have happened but for Meredith's graciousness. Because she could have said, hey, I'm not doing this. The show, you hired me to be the star. Instead, she saw this is about the family. This is how we get people watching. The interesting thing about, about series, and I've heard this from a lot of series writers, is that you make them up every week, you know, and, yeah. and you, it's not like yeah. a movie where you put the thing together and you, it releases on Wednesday and then Monday, if it didn't work, it's you're dead. Right. 
you go in every week, even if the thing's not working very well, say, okay, who, what are we going to do? You know, who's going to, yeah. who's going to, who's yeah. going to emerge here? Who's, who's dead. Exactly. And, and say, that's, that's what's great about series. Absolutely. And, and then you get like, uh, if you remember on family ties, the character of Nick played by Scott Valentine, Justin Bateman, Mallory's boyfriends, right. Written just for one episode. And he barely has any lines because part of the character is how little he speaks. And yet he turns out to be phenomenally popular. We tried a couple of spinoffs with him. Julia, Louis Dreyfus was in one of them. Um, but that's where you also find gold where you didn't even expect it. He wasn't put in to be spun off. He was just to be put in to be a funny boyfriend one time, you know? But, but Art, you're, you're right. You know, with classic sitcoms, so much of the challenge is how do we do the same thing different every week? Right, right. Right. How do we deliver the sameness of the experience that you like, whether it's Seinfeld or King of Queens or take, you know, everybody loves Raymond, whatever, but also do it just different enough that you're still propelling the whole arc of the series. That's right. And I will point out one other thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately. There's so much improvisation that goes into making shows, making channels. I mean, you're really reacting to what's going on all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I think that's some of the most creative explorations in television come out of just like happenstance. Somebody shows yeah. up, a character shows up or, or, you know, whatever, or you, or you get a review and you react to that. I mean, that stuff is what makes television fun to make and fun to watch. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and particularly sitcoms and particularly, you know, the old fashioned four camera sitcoms where, the nature of it being in a way more of a play than a movie um, each week invites that kind of collaboration. As you guys know, it's harder with scripted shows if you're, plan you're shooting stuff that, you know, connects to something else that's going to be shot in six weeks and there's an eight-month edit process. It's very hard to improvise without pulling apart the whole thing. With a sitcom on a typical whatever it is, five or seven-day schedule, it's this great creative burst and you're just going and going and going. At some point you bring in the cameras to say, okay, now we need to stop now just because we got to tell the cameraman to point it. But even there, if you take two versions, as most shows do, you got time between those two. And you have talk about uh, improvisation as far as figuring out not improv in a comedy way, but in a, wow, we have to switch gears. Cheers spun off quite a lot of characters, right? Like Frazier yeah, yeah. famously to a long running. Tortelli's didn't do as well, right? Was that a spinoff? Right. But you worked yeah. on Golden Girls and they, didn't they do Empty yeah. Nest, right? Was that? Is, yes, is that, yes. That was exactly. Them. Good memory. Good memory. One of my favorite things on Golden Girls was talk about the two shows. So there's a dinner. Uh, for cast and crew between shows. And one night I look over and I see Tony Thomas, one of the producers, of course, the son of Danny Thomas, and Betty White and B. Arthur, I kid you not, having a discussion and demonstration of spit takes. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Which and, Danny and invented. Like dining, the dining, the difference between the streaming spit take and the spray spit take. <laughs> And when each one is used comedically. Oh, man. It's fantastic. You know what? If you'd had a cell phone at that moment, right? You, you I know. could have done the whole thing. I know. You, you should write that down because, I mean, that is just a classic thing, you know? Yeah, just, yeah. Just I mean, I think the, there's a couple of those where I knew at the time, like, 
wow, I, I'm just going to shut up and drink it in because like, it's just amazing to be hearing, let alone seeing this. And these are iconic shows and you're like on the set because a lot of these dinners are happening right on the set or, you know, in, in yeah, or nearby. Exactly. Near, nearby. Exactly. So yeah. while before you left NBC and it's fascinating where you went to, you did really work with real people, which was the one of yeah. the first, you know, tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, you guys remember George Slaughter, right? Creator of Laughing Among legendary. Others. Already, already a legendary, you know, TV producer. Um, had produced, as I recall, Sinatra TV specials, among others. Um, and I don't even recall what was his impetus, but it was essentially primetime television doing a lighter version of a TV news magazine, right? Just finding interesting stories. Byron Allen, um, now a big media mogul, right? Owns a lot of networks and stations and other properties, was one of the young hosts. Um, and then, uh, do you guys remember That's Incredible, the yeah. ABC ripoff, yep. right? Yep. You know, um, the to reform, anytime, anytime a new format works, the other networks rip Which it off, Which one was John right? Davidson on? John Davidson. He was, good memory. He was, he was on um, That's Incredible. That's Incredible. This yeah, yeah, yeah. They were the Rolling Stones to your Beatles. There you go. There you go. Exactly. But by the way, also, also at the time, I claim no credit. Nancy will be great for this. Uh, while in the department, Nancy and, and Peter in particular were instrumental in importing and putting on late, late, late night, this little Canadian show called SCTV. Uh, right. Yes. So you, you must talk to Nancy about so, that. I, I can't wait. Unreal. That was one of the things when we went, Mitch is referring to Nancy Geller, who right. uh, Art and I first met at Comedy uh, Comedy Central, right? Not Channel, Comedy Central. Right. And I remember her reputation preceded her in such a great way. It's like, that's the woman from SCTV. Well, and if you guys remember, they when we stumbled on this opportunity of AbFab, absolutely fabulous, right. at, um, at uh, Comedy Central by then, uh, part of the playbook was the SCTV thing, right? Of we're getting this thing, which is by English standards, fully formed, all of 12 episodes, but and our, you know, this fell to you and all credit to you, the fig figuring out, oh, wait a minute, we can we can market this thing as new. It's made. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, we remember we well before NBC did their, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. Yeah, right. right. To, to to promote reruns as originals. We did that with FL. I know we certainly did. Hey, you know, I, I just want to jump yeah. back a little bit. You just going through your career. And you were talking about it before in a way that you said, I comedy this, comedy that, comedy that, comedy that. Did you do that by design because you love comedy, or was that just happenstance that you felt? It was. It was much. Comedy? It was much more happenstance. I mean, Art, the stuff that I later did in news, in many ways, much more connected to where I thought I was going to go. I thought originally, you know, the the radio stuff I done, I had done, uh, was mostly interview shows, what we would now call a podcast. It was right. mostly just these sort of usually. It was the reverse. Instead of a panel, we had like a panel of interviewers interviewing one guest on most of our shows. Um, I thought it would go that route. You know, in, in school, I studied, my major was um, international relations, right? Again, not usually a hotbed of comedy, <laughs> unless for the wrong reasons. Uh, so, but, but you're right, Art. It, I think it really came more out of, out of love. And especially, uh, and we certainly found this at Comedy Central, um, uh, the, the love of the people we get to work with in comedy, 
right? That's that's a lot of the fun of it. For all yeah, the craziness is right. just, as, we get to hang out with a lot of characters. As much as you loved comedy as a kid, you didn't know that hanging out with the comedy people would be as much fun. No idea. And also, frankly, like you guys, I think, had no idea that there were like jobs in show business or what they were. Had no idea of the structure of it as a business. Oh my God, right? the current executive, I had no idea what that was and my whole career no ended idea. up being that. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking I was thinking about when, just a second ago when we were talking about the NBC stuff, I realized, so as I mentioned, I'm, I'm the junior guy in the uh, alternative department. Uh, I'm, I'm the, the most junior guy in all of programming, which had to be 30, 40, 50 people. So junior that of course, originally I'm lucky to be working at the desk. At some point, I inherit an office, which no joke was not an office. It had been a broom closet. <laughs> they convert, right? That's so much so that, that <laughs> when they want to put my desk in the uh, broom closet to make it an office, couple of, we're in Burbank, so there's a studio facility. A couple of the studio technicians come up, cut my desk in half. <laughs> not kidding. Move it into this broom closet and start to leave. And I go, wait, well, are you guys going to put the desk back together? And they go, oh, no. And I go, well, can I put it back together? Get, no, no, you, none of us can touch it. That's a different jurisdiction. Oh, my God. It was, it was my introduction to union jobs in television. That, well, CBS had that at BlackRock, remember? We had that. Yes, yes. The, the stuff we couldn't metal touch. Walls. Well, that's, that's, that's legendary in television. I, I, I worked on things in news where, you know, when I was at CBS stations, and it was five o'clock and there was a big story coming in and five o'clock, the editor just stood up and said, okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait yeah. a second. You can't yeah. go in. Yeah. There's a, but there's a fire uptown. Yeah. We'll leave it for the next guy. Yeah. <laughs> Mitch, tell us how you made the transition from uh, the network to the studio side with Ubu. Um, it was all because of Gary Goldberg. Um, and it goes back to actually what you guys were saying about network jobs, because Gary, if you remember, had come up professionally working for Grant Tinker at MTM, the studio in the salad days. So he had worked on the Tony Randall show, White Shadow, a couple others, um, but he was in the era of Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. They were ruling the roost both in terms of success and cre deserved creative renown. And as a result, they had a rare, and Grant was really the enforcer of this as the owner of MTM, the studio the production company, they had a rare amount of latitude to avoid network interference. So Gary grew up in that, in that manner. And at NBC, he enjoyed the support of Grant and Brandon, most importantly. Family Ties, like Cheers, started very low in the ratings, but they stuck with it. And it wound up being the number two show in all of television across all networks. Uh, but Gary didn't really have a lot of appetite for listening to network notes. And so for whatever reason, when I got into the current department, A, I already loved the show. Uh, I think maybe half of the first season it aired. Um, and B, I was just a new guy. So, so, you know, the head, I think it was then Warren Littlefield just said, oh, yeah, you, you go do that, right? Because <laughs> everybody loved Gary, personally loved the show, but knew like giving him notes was pointless, right? And for whatever reason, um, Gary took a liking to me. Um, I think I learned a little bit the art, certainly with Grant's guidance in how to give notes, which is mostly uh, help the creators to do their best work. This is not about proving that you know anything better about their show or that there's an NBC to way, make, way to make a show. You know, it was just the NBC way at that point was help Glenn and Les Charles to make Cheers the best 
Glenn and Les Charles show and Jimmy Burroughs it can be. Same for Gary and that whole team at Family Ties and same for, you know, with Thomas Harris at Golden Girls. Um, and so at some point, when Family Ties started getting successful a couple of years in, Gary got a deal with Paramount, his partner studio, and NBC uh, to produce more shows. And Gary was the rare creator who knew that he was not going to spread himself thin. He was still going to do mostly family ties, but his motivation was not about the money. It was really giving about younger creators like Mike Whitehorn and Ruth Bannard and others a chance to do their shows with him, you know, with him as their um, mentor, protector, whatever. Um, and so Gary realized, well, I do need somebody to help me run the company. And he went to Grant and Brandon and said, can I have Mitch? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily for me, they said, well, we like him, but if you want him, sure. <laughs> well, that, that year, they must have loved that because, you yeah, know, in some yeah. ways, you know. I, I think, I, yeah, I think you're right, Dan. I think it was presumably a compliment to them as well that at the very least, you gave me a network executive who maybe we can say about him, he just wasn't a jerk. Right. <laughs> you know, you and that's about, counted for something. You're talking about giving notes and, uh, you know, trying to enhance the creativity of, of, the, of the producers and writers. Was that sort of the standard in those days? I mean, uh, you hear it both ways. I would say, uh, no, unfortunately, the norm was a lot of the bad interference stories that you hear about, right? But at NBC, Grant and then Brandon brought an entirely different approach, partly born out of their own experiences. And Grant, he knew because he had been that guy running inter interference as the owner of his production company for his own writer producers on those famous shows. Um, and partly, frankly, out of necessity. As I say, we were so distant third in the three network rates that we didn't have the luxury of being the interfering guys. We had to be, we'll bring you here, we'll support you, and we'll help you to realize your vision for the show. We had to be those guys. So a lot of it, hopefully at that point in doing a job well uh, as a current exec, was um, running interference. And, and being the advocate for the show, especially internally, because remember, you know, everything was still fighting for scarce resources, right? Promo time in those days, you know, print ad time. Vinny, you know this from CBS and Dave's show, especially, right? right. You know, all those resources were, um, even, even funny enough, running, what, and, and on those kind of shows, we didn't have too many problems, but running what were then broadcast standards, you know, in the, in the broadcast standards problems, running interference and being able to mediate, advocate for, you know, sort of translate what might have been a hard, fast rule about, oh, no, you can't use this word into what is the writer trying to get at is what is our solution? Is it to hang tough and win on that word or is it to present the argument and help them find their way to a better solution? Any famous fights that you remember where like maybe the network wanted to throw out a character who was instrumental to making the show a success? No, not, not really. And a lot of that is to Brandon's and Warren's credit because they're genuinely good creative guys themselves. So it was, um, I, think, I think, by the way, if Gary were here, he would probably say it may have been Brandon who pointed out to him first, hey, the audiences seem to really like this Michael J. Fox kid, you know, but it was never, hey, Gary, now you got to make him the star, right? It was still letting Gary get to it on his own time. By the way, from if I do remember from what Gary used to say, a lot of it was also Michael Whitehorn saying, hey, boss, like, it's obvious here. But Gary, being that it was his life, was the last to get there and realize, OK. You know, I don't want to talk too much for, um, um, 
for Michael, but he he talks about how he advocated for that oh, yeah. character and how yeah, I, he felt a tremendous amount of pressure. He says from somewhere that you know maybe the maybe that wasn't the way to go. So I, you know, well, we're gonna have Michael on the show. Yeah, we're having right. Michael. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's hard to let go, especially in Gary's case. It wasn't just that he was cre- created the show. He created the show based on his own life. So of course he wanted it to be about him and Diana, his wife, right? In the form of Meredith and Michael's characters, Michael Gross's characters. So, um, you know, you got to allow for that, right? You got to let somebody, the, the main creative force, get to the right decision on their own time. You know, <laughs> it's a question of does, does, do commercial mandates allow you to have that time to get there, you know? And, and if I remember right, also, Mike as a writer was, was not only going on, remember it was originally the studio audience reaction of the first maybe six or eight shows before the show was even on the air. But Mike was also realizing how phenomenal this character of Alex was to write for. Yeah. Let alone how Mike Fox was playing him. Right. 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 And it didn't help that then back to the future happens during the run of the show. And this guy's on top of the world. If you've got the number one movie star. I mean, it, 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 ultimately, it ultimately does help. It turns out to be good for everybody. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, okay, so yeah. before we get on to PBS, which I know has got a whole bunch of stories, let's talk about talent for a second. So you guys really stuck with Julia, Louis-Dreyfus, because like like stuck her, not stuck with, but stuck with her in, in a great way. And, and you developed Ellen DeGeneres on, on Open House. And therefore shows, yeah, what was it had, about Julia? Um. In Julia's case, we knew her SNL work, which, you, if you guys remember, was very strong, but she was never fully was realized, little. right? There was so yeah. yeah, there was so much else going on, notably a guy named Eddie Murphy, right? <laughs> it, was, it was hard to give her her full due. Um, but we both met both her and her husband, Brad, actually. Brad Hall had been on SNL as well, wound up working a lot with Brad as a writer. He did a couple of shows with Gary. Um, and it was just kind of obvious. It's not hard to say, gee, this woman is insanely funny. So, um, yes, had her on uh, one of the Family Ties Nick spinoffs um, and then on Day by Day, another chapter of Gary's and Diana's lives when they operated a daycare center. And, you know, she was one of the uh, supporting characters because she wasn't the person running the show. But, you know popped out so readily and then got cast on Seinfeld very soon after that. Um, and Ellen, Gary always had, and especially his, his then casting director, Judith Wiener, um, had a great eye. I mean, we had, um, I probably told you guys at the time, but well before Politically Incorrect, we had Bill Maher in one of our Ubu sitcoms. Which one? Gary, yeah, Gary and Ruth Bennett uh, did a show called Sarah which was the name of the main character played by Gina Davis. They were, they were, they were like a uh, legal aid um, law firm. Okay. And uh, it was, I remember check this that. for a cast. It was uh, Gina Davis, Alfre Woodard, Bronson Pinchot, Three Perfect Strangers, and Bill Maher. I always think of Bill Maher as having his start on comedy central when we put him on with right. that, with a, with politically incorrect but he had done a movie before that he'd been well, on exactly. Carson, Channel. Carson been, too he did great stand-up yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, he'd been it, around it, it, but he, yeah he, he yeah. hadn't really right. popped in any big way yeah. and that. and i think it's fair to say bill would probably say this too there's no question he found his niche with doing politically incorrect and real time i mean that's what he's built for he i imagine he would say he was not going to be the guy who had his everybody loves raymond or seinfeld right 
that was not he had he had uh an or has maybe an amazing ego so it's unclear what he was (laughs) (laughs) was but i like how he has an amazing ego that's some compliment but 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 let's be let's be fair also because when i were there when we go back to that first meeting it was actually literally i don't know if you guys remember this it was my first pitch meeting yeah let's we all got my first week right so i start on a monday i meet you guys that's memorable enough friday is my first pitch it's right before uh in november of 92 it's the friday before the tuesday of the election and just for clarity we're at comedy central now we'll get back to comedy central but we're at comedy Comedy central Central. and correct and and by the way mitch is telling a story that i tell in the book so we're going to compare yeah you 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 tell it better but but (laughs) it's art i remember it's on a friday it's you and me and nancy geller and scott carter both guests or soon to be guests on the show and bill maher come in and uh, Bill pitches us politically incorrect. And uh, we were kind of primed because our, you and I had talked and Nancy and I had talked. We were all interested in an alternative comedy panel show, the comedy version, if you will, of the, what was then the, the, the McLaughlin group, you know, at the time, the well-known show. And every syndicators had their versions and local stations had their versions. But um, Art, I hope you remember it the same way. What struck me was... Bill, speaking of development as we were earlier in network interference, Bill pitched us the show that we then put on the air. He had been working on that for years. And he had every every question we asked him, he already had an answer for, including memorably, because I had seen others try this and make the mistake. Others had done formats which were all comedians. And they just talked over one another. And they did prepared material. He said... No, it's going to be me and maybe one other comedian, and then like people from other that's realms right. that's, of expertise. That's and what that's, he emphasized. He said this is going yep. to be a real talk show where people talked, and that's what right. that's what and, he kept and, and you know it it plays into what you were saying about the ego. He did have the sense. He said, "I'm not always going to be the funniest person on the show," because he knew as well he had to be the traffic cop, right, steering the conversation more than the guy who ultimately scores and ends on the funniest line. All right, so let's stay on Bill Moore for a second. Yeah. We greenlit the show immediately. I mean, it was like, okay, yeah. yes. The answer yeah. is yes. Yeah. And, and, and Bill right. said something. And then like, how fast? <laughs> what's that? And then just how fast, right? Yeah. And, and like how Bill, fast? like, oh, I got to move to New York now? Yeah, right. And we didn't have any yeah. money either. And we were yeah. like, oh, yeah. 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 There we was had that. to produce six episodes. I mean, what the heck? So hey, was the first- set on that show, am I remembering this correctly? There were like Roman column, columns. It was, yeah, like- there were, it was as if the, the, it was after the fall of the Roman Empire. It was really I mean, weird. You're exactly right. There were still some upright columns, but then there were fallen and crumbling ones. <laughs> yes. Love Good memory. metaphor. So we, we start the show, and, and in the book, I tell about how my relationship with Bill Moore develops after that initial pitch yeah. meeting, which wasn't yeah. that great. Develops? Right. I say it mildly. Okay, yeah. I went down the toilet yeah. almost immediately. But you had a great relationship with Bill, didn't you? And, and, uh, and you watched and, the and, show yeah. Yeah. From, from a closer vantage point. So what was happening in the first few months? Uh, well, first of all, do you remember we had the craziness, as you said, the art, you'll probably remember the numbers better, but we ordered, was it like 80 shows or something? What was our originally scheduled? No. It was my recollection. is It, we it ordered, was a large block. We ordered more shows than we could afford 
but we we had this way of bringing down the per episode cost because yeah. I think we got the per episode cost down to like fifty grand a show or something insane. Oh, it was lower than that, it was just, we had no money, man. I mean, we were right. just like broke. Right. And, but but uh, what I remember was the craziest thing was it was the lot. Not only was it a great show idea and was Bill the right Bill and Scott the right guys to do it, but it was the logical evolution of what you guys had started with uh, State of the Union and other live programming, right? So to really stake out live topical humor for this burgeoning network, right? Now, the only problem was because we had no money, we couldn't do it live. So do you remember we were doing, we were pre-taping in large batches, a topical series, most of the episodes of which would not go on until four months later. I know. And we had to fake topicality, which was the craziest yes. concept ever. But yes. somehow... We now, well, by the way, one thing that helped us was, although the news cycle was crazy fast then, it was like a 20th of what it is now, right? Yeah, there was true. no Twitter, there was no internet. So at least yeah. news by definition could not evolve quite as fast as it does. I mean, today it would be ridiculous. Could you imagine doing original shows at anything and then putting them on four months later? You'd feel like you pulled them out of a time machine. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and then they had cool. to uh, air them out of order within whatever they had pre-taped. Yes. Because yes. I, I remember, right. I mean, it was, but it was a big deal for, for the network to have such big talent on the air on a regular basis, having Jerry Seinfeld yes. on. Absolutely. And even Robin Quivers, that exactly. was a big deal at the time. Correct. Robin and Jerry, and they're just really good people we all love, like Larry Miller, and we had Roseanne, and, you know, I mean, you're, you're right, Finn. It was, that became the other thing was um, we still needed to be inventing new platforms for ourselves to get more and more famous people on the channel we were a struggling you know kind of third tier cable channel in terms of distribution as you guys well remember but one thing we did have going for us as i recall is that comedians were kind of flattered that we'd thrown a channel in their honor and yes. that and yes. that kind of helped that kind of yes. helped get get people yes. interested yep. you know yep. and, 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 and committing this to um to stand up in the way we did, right? Which really said to the world, uh, like, we love this and we're not just going to be, no knock on Nick at night, but we're not just going to be a rerun channel. Well, like, right. we were I mean, making new stuff and we were, you know, if arguably stand-up is kind of the core, the simplicity, the, the most direct, hey, I got something to say, listen to me kind of comedy, right? We were we were certainly and that's exactly more than planting right. the flag on that. And well, we were still running Benny Hill marathons, you know, well, at the listen, time. We had a channel to hey, put hey, on. Hey, Benny but, Hill's funny. Hey, you <laughs> know what? Hey, wait, guys, hold never on. Never have to defend that. Well, listen, we did it. When he died, I ran a marathon, uh, uh, dead but not over the hill. And we just <laughs> and we just read like 12 shows. Uh, Mitch, can you hang for a second? We Believe it or not, we're going to have to take a break, but we'll be right back with Mitch Semmel. Well, Art, that wasn't a surprise that we have to do a part two at Mitzemel, right? No kidding. I mean, the guy is actually a walking history of the television business for the last 30, 40 years. I mean, it's unbelievable. He was there with all of those guys, Grant Tinker, Tartikoff. You know, it's just amazing what he has seen in his career. The shows that he was uh, responsible for, Cheers and Golden Girls and Family Ties, and that whole story was incredible, the way he switched teams, if you will, to go from the network to the studio, having lunch on the set on the day where they're taping a Golden Girls episode. You know, these shows have lived on. And I wonder when he watches that, what he thinks, you know, it's like, oh, I had two of that day. I remember. Well, that's one of the joys of working in media because, you know, whether it's a television channel or a show, 
when things stay on the air, you know, you can be proud of them for a long, long time. But they, you know, they are unsung heroes because right, and, you know, right, rightfully, when you look at Golden Girls, you know, it's a Whit Thomas production. So, you know, you know, Susan Harris, the creator and the showrunner, and you get that. He probably, she doesn't even get enough credit because a lot of times it's the actors. A lot of people just think the actors are just, you know, making it up as they go along. So it truly is a team. But low on the totem pole of, of getting the spotlight are people like Mitch Semble. Their resume speaks volumes, and people within the industry appreciate that. That's why Mitch has had an incredible career. But I like the idea that this podcast could kind of shine a light on the people behind the scenes who are very important as part of the process. So very excited to continue the conversation with Mitch, which we'll hear next week on the Constant Comedy Podcast. I'm Vinny Favalli. And I'm Art Bell. We'll see you next week. How was that?